Hey church, we're going to uh, turn to our scripture reading this morning. Uh, our scripture for the day is found in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 9. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. Um, church, one of the things that uh, we do as a community is when, when we're together is we crack open the word together, and I challenge you to follow along. If you have to do it on your phone, go ahead and do it that way. Bring your Bible along, highlight things along the way. I think it matters. Um, so I encourage you to go ahead and do that. And as you're turning there, I'm going to start talking. Hey, um, chances are that if you're new here, uh, if, if, that if you're here this morning, um, you, you either identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, you would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, or uh, you might be a person that's on the hunt right now, right? Where you're like, I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of scouting this out to see if maybe this would make sense for my life. Now, regardless, if you're a follower of Jesus or you're exploring the possibility of becoming a follower of Jesus, um, the question I'm about to ask matters significantly for both of us. And that question is this. What is it that you believe that makes you a Christian? What is it that you believe that makes you a Christian? Um, in America today, there are many, many folks that would, that would identify themselves and they'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. When, when we get to our tax forms and there's that little square that we're supposed to fill in that says, what's your religious affiliation, right? We would check the box that says um, Christian or Protestant or evangelical or something like that. Now, at the same time as this, there is a significant portion of us who are confused about what exactly it is that we believe that makes us followers of Jesus. Um, there's a study that came out by a, a ministry called Legionnaire Ministries. They've been studying what American Christians believe for years now. And um, what they found is that American Christians, on one side, we either have a very shallow understanding of our faith, we really don't quite know all the ins and outs of what we believe, or on the other side, not just a shallow belief, but we actually just have plenty wrong beliefs, wrong biblical beliefs that we would affirm. Um, and they measured these things in a study. And, and Legionnaire Ministries found um, um, the average American Christian believes three false things about the faith. Three false things about the faith. The majority would affirm of these false things. Um, the first is that um, most American Christians today would say most people are basically good. Most people are basically good. 52% of American Christians today would agree with that statement. They say, yeah, most people are basically good, of course. Like, yeah. Now, the bad news is that the scriptures, the Bible, does not affirm that. It does not agree with us. If, if we're like, yeah, most people are basically good, the Bible actually disagrees with that. Um, in fact, if you've been a part of our Romans study so far, we, we went through Romans 3, and there's a verse in Romans 3 that really gets at this point. Romans 3, verse 12. Listen to this. It says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Listen to this. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And yet... 52% of folks that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian in America, would say, well, no, like, we're, we're mostly good, like we are. The scriptures beg to differ. Um, the second false belief that most Americans, American Christians would agree with is this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions. Um, if TFRC 
looked like the statistics, right? 51% of us in this room would agree with that statement. We would say, yeah, yeah, God, uh, God accepts the worship of all religions. Now, one of the primary pillars of the Christian faith um, is that there is only one God, there can be no other gods, and that any other gods that you choose to worship, according to the Christian faith, we use the word idolatry for that. That is a bad, bad thing in the Bible. There's lots of people that got in lots of trouble throughout the scriptures because they fell into idolatry, but 51% of us would say, no, God accepts worship from, from all religions. Third false belief, and I think this is the one for me that's most alarming because it really reveals how little we know about our faith as Christians in America today. Um, 78% of American Christians today would affirm this statement, that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Now, if you're like, I, I don't get it, I don't see it. Christians for 2,000 years have vehemently argued the opposite of that statement. For 2,000 years, that Christ was not at all created ever. Christ was not created, but Christ is an eternal co-equal in the triune God. Like, that's where Christ fits in all of that. And yet, 78% of us would affirm that statement. Church, what we believe matters. And it matters today, perhaps more so than it has ever mattered. And it's clear that many followers of Jesus today, today we either don't have a depth of understanding, we don't really know what we believe, or we are filled with false beliefs about our faith. And that is a problem. In a faith with wrong beliefs or shallow beliefs is not a faith that can stand right? It's not. And so this morning, we want to go after belief. We want to talk about belief and what we believe. And to do so, we're going to kick off a series that we're calling Bedrock. Um, and the reason we're calling the series Bedrock is because what we believe, whatever that is, that framework of belief is our bedrock for our lives. It's our bedrock for our faith. It's a bedrock for how we live our lives. It's a bedrock for the decisions that we make when we try to live good moral lives. It's a really big deal, this bedrock that we all have. The church in America has been in decline for decades and decades now. And it appears, looking at the stats, that the church is going to continue in decline for decades and decades to come. And I would argue that the major reason for that, the reason the church is in decline, is because that bedrock, that bedrock, it's, it's eroding away before our eyes. And as our bedrock of belief is eroding away, well, so is our faith in America, too. It's eroding away before our eyes. So church, what we believe today is a big deal. It matters what we believe. Now today, um, if you are a church historian type person, today is a holiday for the church. How many of you know that it's a holiday for the church today? Not many. I didn't realize it until late last week. And then somebody raised their hand from first service. So they're cheating. So um, today is a holiday for the church. That day is called Reformation Day. Reformation Day. That's what today is. 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther wrote down a list of 95 things that he believed the church had wrong in their belief system. The bedrock was broken for Martin Luther. So he nailed 95 different wrong beliefs on a church building and it launched this thing called uh, the Reformation 500 years ago. 
And um, it was at that moment where many followers of Jesus realized it was time for them to take their faith more seriously. We've got to get more serious and sharp in what we know and what we believe about our faith. Now, one of the big themes of the Reformation was there, there was this sort of battle cry that they had. There was like this theological statement that they made where they took a bunch of theological statements and then kind of clumped them together into one. And it was a sort of battle cry during the Reformation. I want to put it on the screen for you. This was the battle cry. It says, Scripture alone teaches that salvation comes from Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. If you're counting... There's like five alones in that statement. Um, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the glory of God alone. These, are the, these five alones are like the fundamental bedrock of our faith, the stuff that we build our lives upon. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Because as people 500 years ago that were followers of Jesus understood, and as we're beginning to understand, what we believe matters, folks. It matters. And so in this series, we're going to go after those five alones. We're going to address every single one of them for the next five weeks. And the first one, the top one, is Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Of the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God is to be a, our primary source of what we deem is true and what we deem is false. It should be our primary source for how to live our lives. This book should have primacy in our lives. It should really matter in our lives. And so we're going to turn to our scripture reading this morning. As I said earlier, Ezekiel 2, starting in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, please open up there with me. I'm going to invite Toby Hellman up. She's going to read for us this morning. In church, what we do every week when we read is we stand up together, if you can. We face the center of the room um, for the reading of God's word. And I don't want you to miss this moment this morning. As we talk about scripture, this moment matters. Pay attention to what's happening here. What we're doing is we're elevating the word of God and we're giving honor to the word of God's. And that matters because there should, there should be a primacy to this book. So Toby, when you're ready, take it away. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Thank you, Toby. You all may take a seat. Now, uh, something that is important to know about me is I would be what some people would call a food wimp. A food wimp. It's true. I probably have a longer list of foods that I do not like than a list of foods that I actually do like to eat. Like in this category, we have pizza and hot dogs and McDonald's or something like that. And then everything else goes in this category for me. Being married to me is a blast. You should ask my wife that. Um, my least favorite food, hands down, least favorite food is seafood. I heard gasps. I heard that in the room. 
Seafood is disgusting, people. I don't understand why you like it. Um, I love the comedian Jim Gaffigan. He talks about seafood and he says, all seafood really is is bugs of the sea. You're just eating bugs when you eat it and that's wrong. Like everyone knows that's wrong. You don't eat bugs. I agree with that. Um, now being a food wimp gives me a particular vantage point in my life when I watch all of you people eat your disgusting food. I get to see it and I get to judge it and I judge it hard. I promise you that. Now, I want to do a little experiment this morning where I get to judge you. It's going to be fun. Um, I'm going to ask you about some foods that you perhaps like to eat, and you have to be honest. And if you do eat these foods and you enjoy them, you have to raise your hand, okay? We've got to, we've got to pull this off. It's going to be this great moment, I feel like. Um, how many of you like macaroni and cheese? Not yet. I saw like 20 kids, they're like, boom, that's the one for me. I love macaroni and cheese, I'm a child too. How many of you like macaroni and cheese with ketchup on it? I heard the gasps in the room, I appreciated that. Um, all of you that had your hands up, you are pagans and sinners. Um, I'm just saying, that's disgusting. Okay, this one's a little better. Some of you may raise your hand for this one. How many of you like um, a hamburger where instead of the bun, they put a donut on each side of the hamburger? How many of you have had that and you're like, that was awesome? There's like two people that like the donut burger. I appreciate that too. You guys, okay, we're going straight to the bottom of disgusting. Are you ready for this one? How many of you like pickles with peanut butter? I saw the hand raise, like the slow raise, like, eh, it's me. Okay. Okay, for all of you, that, all of you that raised your hands for any of those questions, I just want to remind you that Jesus says, repent, you sinner, for the kingdom of God is near. I'm just saying. It's, it's in the Bible. Um, now, now, the passage that we just read in Ezekiel is one of those moments where somebody eats something strange. It's a weird scripture passage, and there's a lot going on in that scripture passage. Kind of behind the scenes, um, the book of Ezekiel is set um, right beforehand. There were thousands of Israelites um, that were taken captive, and they were sent off by this, these, uh, this other nation to live in this other nation far, far away from home, away from their culture, away from their families, away from their faith, all of that stuff. Thousands of them were, and they were sent to the nation of Babylon. And there's this man named Ezekiel, and Ezekiel happens to be one of those unlucky folks that got pegged up by the uh, Babylonians and sent off to Babylon as well. And then five months-ish into his stay in Babylon, Ezekiel has something weird happen. He has this vision, and it's a pretty bonkers vision if you read it and you start like drawing pictures of what he's seeing, right? It's weird. Um, there are animals that have been sort of smashed together to create like super animals, like just really creepy looking animals that he talks about in the vision. There's a glowing person in the vision, which is kind of weird. You can read these in Ezekiel 1 and 2. It's a really strange vision. And then God speaks in this strange vision to Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel that he wants to recruit Ezekiel to become a prophet of the Lord. The, the Lord calls Ezekiel to be the mouthpiece of God to his people, the Israelites, 
and to the Babylonians where he is at the same time. Because both people groups, the Babylonians and the Israelites, they had kind of had a falling out with the Lord. They were rebellious, the passage says, the scripture says. Now, in order to equip Ezekiel for the job of this new role as God's prophet, um, there's this strange moment that happens, and it begins to unfold right at the beginning of our scripture reading. If you have your Bible, take a look at Ezekiel 2, uh, starting in verse 9 a second. Starting in verse 9. And let me read this. Listen to this. It says, Then I looked, this is Ezekiel talking, Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Now, if you're Ezekiel at this point, and you have this moment where suddenly God hands you this scroll, right? You're thinking, okay, like, what is the Lord giving me the scroll for, I think? Like, what's, what's that all about? And you might be thinking, if you're Ezekiel, like, oh, God's giving me a scroll, and this scroll is a sort of how-to guide for how to be God's prophet. It's like how to be God's prophet for dummies or something like that. Like, that's what you're thinking if you're Ezekiel in this moment. Here is a field guide for how to do this prophet thing and how to do this prophet thing well. Now, if you think about it, like Ezekiel, who was given the word of God in a scroll, we were given the holy scriptures, right? The word of God, that's what we call it. And many of us would argue that just like how Ezekiel probably interpreted initially the, the re, uh, receiving that scroll, is that it, the scriptures are a sort of how-to guide for our lives, right? It's a hands-on practical book for how we should live our lives and understand our lives and all that stuff. You know, one way that we might say it is scripture alone is our field guide for life, right? It's our field guide for life. You know, many of us, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, there's, there's that moment when we're, we're in the middle of that business deal and that person suggests something in that business deal and it kind of like hits you a little wrong, right? You're like, I don't know how I feel about that. And in that moment, what do we do as followers of Jesus? Well, we turn to this book and we say, what does the scripture say about this thing and this business deal? Like, how do I read, how does this give me an answer to, to be wise in the midst of this business deal? Um, for, for some of us, there's that season of life where our marriage gets tremendously difficult, right? Like there's hurt, there's pain, there's misunderstanding, there's all sorts of stuff. And in that moment when you're like, I don't even know what the future of my marriage is going to look like as a follower of Jesus, what do we do? Well, we turn to the scriptures and we say, what, what do the scriptures tell me I should do next in my marriage? Like, how should I behave? How should I act? How should I love my spouse? All of those things. You know, when we're discerning, like, okay, this thing happened. I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong. And we're trying to figure out, like, what that means. We turn to the scriptures, right? And we say, okay, what do the scriptures say about this thing so I can understand, well, what is right and what is wrong in this situation? Scripture alone is a useful field guide for our lives. Um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament basically straight up says this to us. It's a famous verse in the New Testament. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. You've probably heard this before. It'll be on the screen. Let me read it. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all really practical in 2 Timothy, right? Scripture is useful for what? Like teaching people things, rebuking people, um, correcting people ourselves, um, being trained in righteousness. It's all very hands-on for every good work, the passage says. Now, most of us, like we read that and be like, yeah, like that's exactly what you know, the scriptures are there for. Like, that's how we should use this book. You know, just as an aside, do you use this book that way at all? You know, one of, one of my wonderings is, if it's true, if Second Timothy is right, and like, scripture is useful for all of those things, and we should d- use the scriptures in that way, how many of us are actually reading the scriptures Or how many of us are, instead of reading the scriptures, but reading books about the scriptures, and that's in lieu of reading the scriptures, right? Or how many of us, we're we're in pursuit of living a better life, right? We want to live the best life we can. We want to be successful. We want to learn how to forgive people. We want to just be a good, decent human being, right? And so how many of us, our first place to look for that is this book right here, and then how many of us, it's like, well, no, like I read Brene Brown for that stuff. I don't, I don't read this. What, how true is that for you? I, I think it's a great question to ask. Scripture alone is to be our field guide for life. Now, in our scripture reading in Ezekiel, um, God has way more for Ezekiel when it comes to God's word than a how-to guide for life. If, if you have your Bibles Take a look at verse 9 again, Ezekiel 2, verse 9 again. I just want to kind of read a, little, a larger chunk there. And listen to this. We just read this part. It says, Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And then in chapter 3, it says, And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. That's weird, right? (laughs) Am I the only one that's like, excuse me, what do you do with that? You eat the scroll. So so when it comes to this book, we would say 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture is useful for all kinds of practical things in our lives, right? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, right? Right? And God says, yeah, like that's exactly what this is for. But in Ezekiel, he says, but just let me twist one little thing here. It's how the scriptures teach us to do those things that Ezekiel wants to get at here. It's how the scripture teaches us to to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. That's what Ezekiel is after. And how does that happen? Well, God says, okay, Ezekiel, Take this scroll here. And this, the passage says, if you're following along, he, he unrolled the scroll, right? God unrolled the scroll. And then he handed it off to Ezekiel. And then what did God say Ezekiel was to do with it? He's supposed to eat it. If you're Ezekiel, you're like, Excuse me? Like, eat the scroll? I don't think that's what you're, that's not how this works. No, God says, you eat the scroll. He says, you you take a piece and and you you tear a piece off of the scroll and and you 
you eat it. This is awful. It doesn't taste good, and I feel like I'm cracking a tooth right now. I'm going to take it out of my mouth. Don't eat paper. I just learned that. Uh, kids, you're in the room. Um, but, but take this scroll, and God says, God says, eat it. Consume it. Taste it. Let it fill you, it says. You see, Scripture... Scripture alone should satisfy our hunger is what you learn from the Lord in Ezekiel. You know, there's one thing and one experience that virtually all of us have, right? And that one common experience that we would have is that we all eat, right? Like all of us do. And if you don't eat, then you don't last long in this world. That's how it works. You have to eat, and we all do. You know, have you ever had that moment um, where you worked really hard all day, like you were just doing manual labor or whatever it happened to be, and you worked hard. And in the midst of working really hard, like you kind of skipped your meals for the day because you're just too busy trying to get the task at hand done, right? And then there's that moment like you finish the day and your stomach's starting to grumble and you're ready for dinner. And there's that moment you walk into the door to your parents' house and you smell that mom's cooking something, right? You've had that moment. Mom's cooking something and you're so hungry and it just smells incredible. And you're like, oh man, like I'm so hungry right now. And so mom's cooking dinner and finally you get to that moment where you get to sit at the dinner table together and you've got the fork and you like stab it into whatever it is that mom made. And then you have the experience of that first bite on a very empty stomach. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you take that bite and that moment is like, oh, oh. Like this is living, right? You've had that moment where you finally got that bite and you can taste every little ingredient in it. And it's like, oh, like I was so hungry and that bite just did it for me. And, and then dinner goes on, right? Dinner continues and, and mom serves up a second plate for you because you're so hungry. And then like you finish that one and then you're like, mom, I need thirds. And she's like, you have a problem, but here. And then you, you, know, you eat the third one as well. And then there's that moment at the end of the meal where you've taken your last bite, the meal is done. And you know that feeling, right? The meal's over, belly full, and it's just like this, oh, euphoria. Like it's a great great moment. It's a moment of deep satisfaction when you finally filled your belly full when it was so empty before. God says, says, eat this book. Consume it. Consume this book. Eat it. And you will have a satisfaction beyond any other satisfaction. It will be like a full belly after a hard day of work. Like, eat this book. And folks, even when there's that moment where, where we read scripture and the scriptures, they challenge something in us. And, and you know, after reading the scriptures, you're like, no, I, something's got to change here now, right? Like, my life has to change after reading this thing. And it's going to be a painful transition from living this way to now suddenly I have to learn how to live this way. That's going to be painful. But even in those moments, God says, the scriptures will be like, they'll be like honey to you in those moments. They will be sweet on your lips. That's what the scriptures are to be for us. 
We should eat this book. We should consume it. You know, there's a pastor, he recently uh, passed away in the last couple of years. And, and I think he, he wrote so well about the word of God and, and he talked about consuming scripture. And I have a quote for you. I want you to hear this quote because I think it's, it's just money for us. Listen to this. Eugene Peterson says, Holy scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. You see, when we eat this book, it does something to us. You know, it's a lot like when we just, well, eat food, right? Like if we were to take this honey and I was just to crack it open and just down it, first you'd think I'm weird, like that guy's got a problem. But the other thing is, like what happens when we eat something like this? Well, our body breaks it down, right? And it breaks it down into like some core elements. You have proteins and fats and acids and all of that kind of stuff, right? It breaks it down into all those smaller elements. And then what does our body do with all those smaller elements? Do you know? Well, make makes them a part of us, doesn't it? Those things become part of us. That food that you ate, that protein that you ate, that fiber that you ate, those things can become a part of us. They kind of work their way into our DNA. You see, the word of God, we're to eat this book. And, and when we do, when we eat this book, this book has the power to become a part of us. Where we assimilate it and it becomes part of our DNA. And if we do that enough in our lives, it, we have the potential to where the differentiation between this book and me grows smaller and smaller every single day because the scriptures, the word of God is literally becoming a part of us. You know, a massive question for us to answer, I, I think we have to take this seriously, especially these days are, well, what are you consuming these days? What is it? Is it this book? Or is there a long list of other things that come before this book? Because the things that we consume, the things that we take into ourselves, those things, whether we like it or not, they become a part of us, don't they? You know, like the obvious one for me is news. Like our culture is obsessed with watching the news and I don't even care which one it is, we're obsessed with it. We watch the news and that news, if we pour into it day after day and read and read and watch and watch, that news will become a part of us. It will. And there will be a day when suddenly you are filled with angry after, anger after watching the news and you're gonna say like, what happened to me? Well, I became what I consumed. That's what happened to you. It's not just news. We literally say things like, I'm binge watching a Netflix show right now. That's a food word. We're consuming Netflix and it's becoming a part of us. It literally changes us. 
Or maybe it's not Netflix. Maybe it's not the news. Maybe it's um, constantly going down your, your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed and you're looking at memes by people or hashtags on social media, right? And that's what you'll spend hours and hours doing every night before bed. What do you think that is doing to us? It changes us. We consume it. Or maybe it's, it's shopping, like today, it's the Amazon shopping, right? We just scroll through Amazon and add things to our wish list and our carts, and we can spend hours doing that. And it becomes a part of us. It literally has the capacity to change who we are. Church, Scripture alone should be our primary diet. Scripture alone. Like, if we're being honest, I would argue that it's not for most of us. It's not. We are consuming all kinds of other things before we even touch this book. And I fear, what is that doing to us? It's changing us, isn't it? Now, Ezekiel says, eat this book, right? Eat this book. Um, this morning... There we go. Feel better now. This morning, this morning is Communion Sunday. And it's funny that it's Communion Sunday because on Communion Sunday, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're eating things, right? We are literally, when we come to communion, we are literally eating bread and drinking from a cup. And in the midst of that, we, we're, we're taking something into our bodies and making something part of us. And at the table, when we come to the table, what are we taking in? Well, we're taking in the word that became flesh. And we're taking that into our bodies. And we're making that a part of us. Um, communion is a way of, of taking this book and literally consuming it. And that's what we're going to do this morning when we come to the table you know, maybe this morning is an opportunity for you, for us, for all of us to, to change up our diet. Like we're going to come to the table and we're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink from the cup. And maybe it's an opportunity to say like, this needs to become my primary diet now and, and let the other stuff go or at least deeply minimize it in our lives. And let's see how this word when we take this seriously as a church, how it changes us. Amen? Why don't I pray and then we'll, we'll turn to the table this morning. Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you even for the weird stuff like eat this scroll, God. There's so much in there for us. And God, whether it's weird or not, it's true. We need to start consuming your word, ingesting it, making it a part of us. God, when we come to the table in just a moment here, God, bring to mind the fact that um, at the table, we are, we are literally eating the word of God in Jesus. And God, we pray that in that moment, you send your spirit upon us to do the renovating that needs to be done on our hearts 
to change us, to transform us, to make us look a little bit more like your word, God. We ask for that today as we, as we remember the cross in, in eating and drinking. So God, we ask that your spirit just be present with us in this next minute or two as we take communion together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So scripture alone, um, as Ezekiel says, eat this scroll, right? Eat this scroll. Consume the word of God, right? There's one more piece there that we can't miss. See, we should consume the scriptures and something else should happen after we consume the scriptures. There's a pattern in the Bible um, and it's found in the book of Ezekiel as well where God says, says, eat this book, consume this book, and then there's, oh, by the way, something should happen after you do so. And, and you can actually read that in Ezekiel 3, 4. Um, I'm going to read Ezekiel 3, 3 and 3, 4 to you a second. Just listen to this. It says, then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll. I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. That's where our scripture reading ended, but then it keeps going. And listen to this in verse four. It says, he then said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words. There's a relationship between consuming God's word and then speaking God's word. We, we consume God's words and it's not just for us. It's so that we can speak God's word into the world. And, and there's something powerful about speaking God's word. Like when we speak, it creates like sound waves, right? And then they go out into the world. When we speak, we make a noise. That noise leaves us. It exits our body. It is gone. And then it is released, unleashed out into the world. And then it does whatever it does out into the world. It's kind of amazing to think about. When we speak God's word, we are literally unleashing God's word out into the world. I, I had this moment um, a couple years ago. We were at a friend's house, and they happened to live right next to a church. And that church was like a holy rolling Pentecostal church, like what I grew up with. I loved it. And we, we pulled up to our friend's house, got out of the car, and they were all worshiping together. And it was so loud as they sung to the Lord. And the sound waves were just blasting out of that church into the neighborhood. And those sound waves hit me, and it reminded me of the power of the Spirit in my life right at that moment in a really compelling way. That that's what speaking the word can do. We unleash God's word into the world. We consume it so we can speak it. Uh, in a moment, that's actually what we're going to do. We're going to speak God's word. So let's, let's do that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace, church. Amen? Amen.